Good evening. And once again, I'd like to thank the elders for this opportunity to speak in front of you. Uh, this morning, we discussed what the story of David and Goliath was really about, what lesson the Holy Spirit wanted us to learn from that. And it's not the story of an underdog overcoming insurmountable odds. It's about listening to the voices around us and making wise decisions about which voices to listen to. And so what I want to do this evening is go back through that story and some of the details and discuss some of the voices that we need to be wary of and then look at what David did to focus his thinking and his decision-making on what I call this morning the voice of truth. This is the voice of truth, and we need to remember that. So let's take a look at some of the voices that were competing for David's attention. First of all, the most obvious is the voices of the world. If we turn back to 1 Samuel 17 and we look at the first voice in this story that David heard, it was the voice of Goliath. And in verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. And remember, he did this morning and evening every day for 40 days. And on the 40th day, this is what David heard. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. So, what was Goliath's basic challenge? Instead of our army fighting your army, send out one man. We'll have a one versus one and one person on, on another. And that's what's going to decide the battle. Well, we need to beware of the world's shortcuts because there's always a catch. I'll give you an example. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. This isn't just the world saying this. This is the prince of the world. This, the prince of this world, Satan himself, says this to Jesus, starting in verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All of this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. He said, you can have all of this if you just bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. There's an interesting side point to that temptation of Jesus. Satan promised him all the kingdoms of the world. Where in Scripture does it say that he had the ability to do that? The Scripture tells us that Satan is the prince of lies. The prince of the world always lies. Look at John 8. Jesus himself tells us this. John chapter 8, verse 44. 
He's talking to the Jews who believed him, and Jesus said to them, uh, well, the Jews answered him and said, Aren't we right in saying you were a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Oh, sorry. Go back up to verse, that's 448. Verse 44. He's, Jesus is talking to these Jews, and he says, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. When he lies... He speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Well, why do I bring this up? Well, let's go back to what Goliath was claiming. He's saying, one-on-one, me versus one man from Israel. Yet, look at 1 Samuel 17, verse 7. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and his iron point weighed 600 shekels, And his shield-bearer went ahead of him. It wasn't one-on-one. And even when David was there, verse 41, once again, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. It's not one-on-one. It's two against one. He's lying. And... If you look at 1 Samuel chapter 18, and we look at verse 30, see, what was, what was Goliath's deal? You send out one guy, if he kills me, then we'll be your servants. But if I kill him, then you're going to be our servants. That's the deal. But in chapter 18, verse 30, the Philistine commanders continued to go out to battle. And as often as they did, David met with more success than the rest of Saul's officers, and his name became well-known. So the Philistines didn't meet the terms of the agreement. It was a lie from start to finish. And he wondered that David was saying, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that you're listening to him? So beware the voices of the world. They are the voices of Satan, the father of lies. Well, what's another set of voices that was competing for David's attention? Well, it's what I call the voices of so-called experts. In 1 Samuel 9, verse 2, we're told that basically Saul was the big guy in Israel. Kish had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. So here's the guy that literally stands out in the crowd because you can see his head above everybody else. And when Saul first sees David in chapter 17, verse 31. What does Saul, the king, Saul, the expert man of war, say? Verse 33. Saul said, 
you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a boy, and he's been fighting men from his youth. So first opinion of the expert is, are you nuts? (laughs) You can't do this. And, of course, David proceeds to say, well, wait a minute. Here's my pedigree. Here is why I believe I can succeed. Because God delivered the bear and the lion into my hands. And the Philistine's going to be no different. So even after David explains his experience, what does the expert do? Verse 38. Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I can't go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. So what's the expert do? Remember, he's a head taller than everybody else. He says, well, you're going to need armor, so here, take my armor. And it's never going to fit this guy. But this is what the expert thinks is needed. David goes with his experience. He says, no, I can't, I can't use these. This is, no, uh-uh. David goes with what he knows. He knows his staff. He knows his slingshot. He's going what God has shown him are his strengths. Not Saul's. Not Goliath's. Now, remember, you know, sometimes experts are a good resource, but sometimes they're too enamored with their own brilliance. I don't know if you've seen it. There's a TV ad uh, for this show, and one of the guys says, well, that's because I'm brilliant, and I'm also humble. (laughs) That's the world. And there's a, there's a place for expertise, but we have to analyze that. And when we look at Saul, if we go back to before this takes place, go back to 1 Samuel 15. In 1 Samuel 15, verse 28, King Saul was ordered to completely destroy the Amalekites. And he took it on himself to kind of reinterpret God's command. And so Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. And that's how David became anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. So this so-called expert, even though Saul is king still, He's no longer aligned with God's will. So, in a battle between the world and God's people, why would you use the advice of someone who is no longer aligned with God's will? That's silly at best. Some other voices that were competing for David's attention were the voices of those close to him. There was a passage that we kind of skipped over this morning, part of the story in 1 Samuel 17. 
starting in verse 12. Remember what David's reason for being there was initially. It was because Saul's army had been gone for over a month. There's no news coming back, and Jesse gets kind of concerned about what's going on with his three boys, his three oldest, who went to the battle in Saul's army. First Samuel 17, verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was old and well-advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Aminadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David was back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So David's back and forth between the army and being back home tending his father's sheep because this is going on, this stalemate's going on for over a month. And so in verse 26, when he shows up this this final time at the end of 40 days, verse 26, David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And they repeated to him what they'd been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, the firstborn, heard David speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now, when you look at that, what's your first thought? And in my mind, it's like, whoa, what's up with this? This seems kind of like a a wild overreaction by his oldest brother. Did you ever wonder what was up with that reaction? It's like, where is this coming from? Well, let's look at some of the background. Let's go back a chapter. 1 Samuel 16. Remember, in 1 Samuel 15, Saul has been rejected by the Lord as king. And he's going, God is going to replace him. So, in 1 Samuel 16, we have the story of Samuel going to find and anoint the next king of Israel. And he gets to um, Jesse's household, and in verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab. Remember that name? That's Jesse, uh, Jesse's oldest. He saw, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So there's something wrong with Eliab's heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab. We've seen that name in chapter 17. And had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, the third son that we had mentioned in verse seven, at chapter 17. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. 
So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, get this, in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. So this is the background about what's going on with Eliab, Abinadab, and Shammah. They were paraded in front of Samuel's, nope, the Lord hasn't chosen this one. Nope, he's not chosen this one. He's not chosen this one. The baby boy. The little brother. This is the one the Lord has chosen. How did that make Eliab feel? Because remember, in Jewish tradition, the oldest is supposed to receive the double blessing. And he's been passed over. His little brother is going to be the next king. And so when David... They've been out there for 40 days. Nobody is doing anything about this Philistine. David comes in and says, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. What did you say is going to happen to the man who kills this guy? And it just frosts Eliab. He's heard David's attitude. You know, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Right over Eliab's head. He's not interested in that. Sometimes our closest relatives can be among the voices we need to ignore. And that's exactly what David does. Eliab says, I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down just to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? And then he turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. What's going to be done to the man who kills this Philistine? And the man answered him as before. David was laser-focused on that mission. And he didn't let his older brother deter him. He said, hey, I'm talking here. Matthew 10, chapter 34, covers this very, very clearly. Jesus said, Do not suppose I have come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who doesn't take his cross and follow me isn't worthy of me. 
Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It seems counterintuitive and countercultural, but Jesus is saying, since he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one finds the Father except through him, if your family is getting in the way, they need to be secondary. If the family is calling you conceited and impugning your motives, you know better. Turn your focus to the positive, to God's will, like David did. We're told in Romans 12, 18, as far as it depends on us, be at peace with all men. But that doesn't mean we be at peace with all men at all costs. The Holy Spirit says, as much as it's in you, as much as it's your part. When I first became a Christian, um, my dad and stepmom thought I was nuts. They thought I was part of a cult. And they always would schedule family get-togethers on Sunday around 5, 5.30. And after doing this for about six months, they came to me and said, how come you never come to the family uh, dinners? I said, well, because I have worship service. I'd be, I'd be happy to come if you schedule them at a different time. Next Sunday, family dinner was at 3. And they tried to make things go a little long. It's like, but thank you for dinner, but, you know, I've got to go. Oh, you have to? Yes, I have to leave. So stick to your guns. Don't have to be nasty about it. Romans 12.18 tells me not to be. But make sure that they're aware of where your loyalties lie. So how do we deal with all the competing voices in our lives? How did David do it? Did he hear some mystical voice from God? There's no indication of any of that in 1 Samuel 17. It's closer to 1 Peter 3.15. He had set aside God with a special place in his heart. He sanctified the Lord in his heart. And that was something that was part of his practice. That was something he had done. He had already set that up. So it wasn't an issue of listening to something else. Look at what David wrote in Psalms. Look at his attitude. Look at his way of thinking. If we go to Psalm chapter 1, the very first Psalm, what does David say here? Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. 
I can imagine David sitting there with the sheep, thinking about the scripture reading from last Sabbath, meditating on it, thinking on it, writing poems and psalms about it. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And look at what David says in Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. I can imagine David writing this as he pondered the fight with Goliath. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you're my son. Today I've become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You'll rule them with an iron scepter. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is David's attitude. This is the way he thinks. Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. David, out tending sheep, looking at the stars in the sky and imagining the power that created all of that with just speaking a word. I mean, I can create things with my hands, but I, just, just speaking. And the more we learn about this universe, the bigger and more amazing it is. And all God had to do was speak. And it was. Or in Psalm 11, In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? This is David's attitude. This is his thinking. If God is my refuge, what can I be afraid of? This is what David comes to conclude when, like he said in Psalm 1, he meditates on God's word. And you have all these competing voices. How do you tell the difference? It's like the story of the counterfeit expert at Scotland Yard. And uh, a reporter went in to interview him. And all of these counterfeit bills that this expert had discovered were all displayed around his office. And the reporter asked him, wow, you must spend an awful lot of time studying all these counterfeit bills. I mean, how much time do you spend looking at them? 
And he said, none. I spend all my time studying the real thing. That way, when I look at something and it's different, I know it's counterfeit. That's what David did. That's how he fought off all these competing voices. He meditated on God's word. He focused on the voice of truth. And that's how he knew everything else was false. Because it didn't match what God had said. Our society today has lots and lots of voices. A news article was pointed out to me that um, somebody was, there had been a news article that claimed that uh, a whole bunch of artists had declined to perform at King Charles' coronation. And then you read later on, well, it turns out that those were alleged claims. It's like I tell people all the time, there's a certain way to read news articles. The headline will set you on fire. But if you read the entire article, what they do is they kind of squish around with it in the first few paragraphs, but they essentially follow the headline. But in order to not have any libel suits, what they do is they wait until the last paragraph to tell you the truth. Knowing most people will only read the headline, anybody who goes past the headline will only read the first two paragraphs. Very few people go all the way to the end of the article. But if they get sued, they can like, wait a minute, read here at the end. We told you the truth down here. So be careful of listening to the voices around us. Especially if they come from the world because they're trying to trick us. So let's do like David did. Let's meditate on God's word, the voice of truth. Think about that. Study that. Learn it. Set a special place in our hearts for that. And then we'll be able to tell which voices are telling us the truth and which ones are not. So if you have a need... If you've been listening to all kinds of voices and you need some help, that opportunity is given to you right now this evening as we stand together and sing.